You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, here to bring you another episode talking about, once again, the topic I usually like to talk about in January, but I did slip earlier this month, abortion. And today we, we're going to go across the pond, as it were, to reach one of our friends in the United Kingdom and get their stance over there. And that's going to be Daniel Roger today. He's going to be talking about abortion. Now, who is Daniel Roger? He works at the NHS and has an undergraduate degree in Religious Studies and History and a Master's in Ethics. He also works as a pro-life apologist for Life Training Institute in the UK, and he runs the UK Project's Facebook group and tweets at Failed Atheist. Now, he also wanted me to mention he loves being a cultural agitator. Not sure why he wanted that mention, but it tells me we're probably going to get along very well. So, Daniel, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thanks a lot, Nick. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Now, I'd like to let people know we did have some technical difficulties in getting things set up, so our interview is only going to be an hour and a half today, but we're trying to pack that in with as much as we can. So, Daniel, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us a little bit more about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Um, so, I, I uh, became a Christian about 10 years ago. Uh, before then, I would consider myself a, a, an atheist, not your sort of Hitchens, uh, Dawkins-like atheist, but uh, I didn't really think that theism, Christian theism especially, was a sort of tenable position to have. And so prior to, to that point, I would have considered myself pro-choice. Um, but to, to be honest, I was just sort of ignorant of it. I just, I just accepted it. When someone said something like the, the term abortion, it wasn't connected with any sort of uh, any act of violence against a you know another human being. It was just it was socially I was socially acceptable act and and I just accepted that. And about a year into be, being a Christian, I managed to I I I've tried I've tried to remember how I how I got hold of it. But I got a hold of Randy Alcorn's book. Um, I think it's pro pro life answers to pro choice questions. Yeah, the pro choice arguments. I think, but yeah, it's a great yes. book. Yeah, and so I, I think it was only after a year I kind of I was sort of shocked because I mean uh, that first year of being Christian, no one had really brought up um, abortion at all, and I sort of made this because I, I can't believe I used to find this uh, uh, morally acceptable, and and that sort of led me. I think I watched something called uh, an online video called The Silent Scream, and um, and started doing a bit more reading around it and um, yeah just was very quickly you know uh, convicted and converted uh, pro-life after after reading and watching those things it just seemed if I'm honest I, I couldn't understand how anyone could think it was uh, a, a morally position a morally, morally permissible view to hold <coughs> last week I interviewed Laurie Peters who Looks at a crisis pregnancy. So you know, we talked about the silent scream video some, and I really can't talk about it much because I, I have never seen the video. 
and the reason is, and I'm sure you could understand this very well, is that I'm incredibly squeamish. I can't even stand seeing a paper cut on someone. <laughs> there is no way I'm going to be able to watch a video like that. Yeah, I can I can appreciate that. Um, and it, you know, it is, it is shocking to watch. And I think um, I think if people need to watch that to become pro-life, um, yeah. then they need to watch it. And if you don't need to watch that to be pro-life, then mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need, need to watch it. I know a few other people. I know Mike Adams as well. I think he writes about in his book Letters to a uh, to uh, it, Letters to a Progressive or, or something. Letters to a he Young wrote, Progressive. That's the one. That's a great book. Mm-hmm. And he he very, he mentions um, the silent screen as well as something that very much impacted his uh, change of position. Uh, of course, we have a member when it comes to Mike Adams. We all hate Mike Adams, though. Oh, of course, I can't stand the guy. <laughs> now, when we're talking about abortion in the UK, I mean, you work with the NHS, and I'm a member of the healthcare system over there. And how is it different over there when everything is nationalized, as it were, the healthcare system is different? How does that change the dynamics of abortion? So what tends to happen is that we do, the NHS does do uh, abortions. So we'll perform abortions. But it's also, they will also delegate them out to private institutions like BPAS and Mary Stokes. So um, I'm not sh- sure how, who, who exactly does, does the most, um, but I know a large proportion is, is, is shipped out to um, private um, providers like, like those. Um, the position for someone like myself who works in the NHS is that I once worked in a, at the place where I trained. Um, they did perform abortions, but um, we are protected by um, conscientious objections, so I had to sort of speak to my manager and say, look, I'm not willing to, to be a member of the team if, uh, if, if, if this goes on, and just uh, I'd like to be moved to a, another theatre, um, I'm not, uh, you know, I'd like to, to have, uh, to sort of make my conscious objection to abortion known, mm. and um, so, so yeah, I mean, and, and that's, the, I think that's a, a lot of people will do that as well, I know a lot of, we have a lot of Filipino, Roman Catholic and stuff, and they're very pro-life. Um, and they also won't won't participate in those as well. But there's usually enough people who are willing to, and so they, you know, it's never never generally to the point where they won't happen because there isn't enough staff. Do you have any concerns though about in the future that could change? Um, it is a worry that I have, um, but. From from their perspective, I'm not something. I'm not. I'm not because it's not actually impacting the delivery of what they would consider care, uh, mm-hmm. which clearly isn't care. I think it would only uh, be challenged if it became such an extent that actually they didn't have enough health workers to mm-hmm. actually participate and perform those um, those abortions. So mm-hmm. for now, it's not something I'm 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 worried about. And actually, the place where I work now, we don't. I work at a children's hospital now. We don't perform abortions, uh, but um, perhaps if we were to be, uh, which I'd, I hope the UK did become more pro-life, and that is a problem I'd, I'd love to see happening. I'd love to see, uh, you know, uh, 
cancellation of people went on a to-do list because actually there's too many people who are unwilling to, to participate in that. Now, here in America, we've still got a pretty strong Christian culture, not as strong as I'd like it to be, definitely, but it, it's still a significant percentage of a population. And meanwhile, the pro-life side, it, it's kind of growing, I think, over here, including we, we've got groups like the Secular Pro-Life Alliance and others. Now, when we look over at the UK, I mean, I know there are some bright spots over there, like Premier Christian Radio and Unbelievable and NT Right and others, but it's my understanding the Christian population, percentage-wise, is a lot smaller than it is over here. And how does that change the views of a general populace on abortion? So most people, when I say, um, mm-hmm. should qualify that, people like myself before I was a Christian, tend to be pretty ignorant of what abortion actually is, what, what it is. So we, very much when you say the term abortion, it's completely disconnected. It's completely out of context from any act of violence towards another you know, a member of the human community. So I'd say actually large-scale ignorance is a problem, um, mm-hmm. and that's reinforced by the fact that actually we don't have the type of the, the scale and size of movement that you have in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And let me, let, me, let me give you an example. When I visited friends in Florida uh, a couple of years ago, we, um, we spent some Sundays at their church, and we got invited to a pro-life rally. I think it was to raise money for CareNet, and we, there were several hundred people... Uh, had a barbecue, we did a march through the local town, and it was fantastic. And nothing like that, you know, very rarely does anything like that happen in the UK. And that's generally because not only is the non-Christian population uh, ignorant about what abortion is, um, uh, when you look into the Christian community, we always have the same problem, because what tends to happen is that, by and large, the evangelical community tends to... um, really ignore ethical issues so mm-hmm. um, we're, we're pretty we're a pretty uninformed group when it comes to things like embryonic stem cell research uh, abortion euthanasia these sorts of hot topics and what tends to happen is that the church becomes informed uh, their attitudes are informed by the secular media rather than any uh, robust Christian uh, the, rather than the robust mm-hmm. Christian worldview that kind of underpins um, mm. Why we might have a different view mm. to, the, to, the, to, the, uh, to those of a, of a secular worldview. So, um, yeah, I mean that's so that's 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 a problem. That's something I'd like to I'd like to and trying to change. But it, um, people just want to ignore it because I think we we tend to have this view. Well, it's not really part of the gospel. We just want we want we want to just preach the gospel and stay away from these things that might upset people. So we're very much scared about offending people and that mm-hmm. uh, stops Christians really engaging with the issue uh, unfortunately that same kind of thing is going on here in the states as well and I wish the ignorance a lot of Christians seem to have was only to ethical issues but unfortunately it looks like many Christians just don't really develop a Christian worldview, and it, it seems like even when you talk about your conversion that within a year it was about a year later you read Randy Alcorn. You just hadn't seemed to make the connection yet between abortion and Christianity, what they had in common. Do you think mm-hmm. that seems fair to say? Yeah, because um, 
it's a culture of silence. You know, if we mm-hmm. if we ignore things in the Christian community, then we aren't necessarily going to change our views on it. So the fact is that right. I was a Christian. You know, I loved Jesus. My mm-hmm. life was completely uh, transformed and changed by the power of the gospel. But mm-hmm. I, my, I, I was sort of neutral. I didn't really. If someone had said, "Oh, are you pro-choice," well, well, I don't know. And it, I don't, I'm not sure because no one really asked me because it was sort of. Mm-hmm. I, I discovered it myself, um, but it wasn't suddenly that I was a Christian and now, well, I was just pro-life. Um, but I, was, I, I guess what I'd learned during that year very much set me up to be pro-life. So when I encountered uh, the present a presentation of it, I was suddenly like, "Well, that's a view I should hold, given that yeah. we're created in the image of God, etc." Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think some of us could also have <clears throat> some connection with the idea we have of a? an improper understanding of separation in church and state, or say, where because it's supposedly a religious view, it really shouldn't have any place in politics, and that even Christians think that. Yeah, again, but I like pointing out how silly that view is. Mm-hmm. Is that you, the pro-life view is not is not a specifically Christian view. I think the Christian worldview best underpins. It kind of provides that that ontological basis. Mm-hmm. Um, where you ground human equality and these sorts of things, but you don't mm-hmm. necessarily need to be a, a Christian to know that killing other human beings is wrong. So often right. I'd say to friends mm-hmm. that it, you don't need to be a Christian to know that killing an infant is wrong. You don't need to be a Christian to know that it's wrong to kill a ten-year-old or a teenager or an, you know whatever. It's not a religious view to know that mm-hmm. it is wrong to kill other human beings. You know, Francis Beckwith, I've been going through a book of his lately called uh, Taking Rights Seriously, R-I-T-E-S. I'm not sure if you've read it or heard uh, of it. It's on my wish list on Amazon. And uh, if we're all interested, when I get done with it, I plan on contacting Dr. Beckwith, who actually sent me the copy so he could be on the show to talk about it. So watch for that in the future, Dr. Francis Beckwith coming on the show. But anyway, he makes the mistake. He makes a point that uh, a lot of people make the mistake of assuming that the debate over abortion is a religious debate, and therefore the rules of reasoning and science and such don't really apply. He says, no, this, this doesn't fit. I'm thinking about what I wrote yesterday about you know, the Mephesis group, and so you could look and see the question of, about questions about the life of Jesus. And those might have religious, in fact, they do have religious implications, but they are still, in some ways, historical questions. And you could ask, historically, did Jesus die on the cross? Well, yeah, of course he did, historically. But then the religious question could be, why did Jesus die? I mean, you could ask, historically, why did Jesus die? They were the Jews were upset about his popularity. They hand him over to, <clears throat> to Pilate, they put him to death. Well, that's the historical answer. The theological answer, you could then say, is, for the sins of a world and such. And doesn't it seem like we're making the same mistake though when it comes to abortion? We look and say, well, this is a religious issue and so therefore the government shouldn't take any stance on a religious issue. Yeah, I mean, I mean the same, it's, it, it's sort of very similar to the debate around slavery as well um, mm-hmm. in the sense that, well, um, it's not... When, when anything, any, any time you come in conflict with a secular view, uh, when you're in disagreement, the easy thing for them to say is, well, the only reason you differ on this morally is that you, you hold to a religious worldview. And mm-hmm. so, 
and, and so mm. the assumption is you know, there are no objective moral norms or things we can hold objectively mm -hmm. accountable to um, and so you must be making a religious claim and that's that's where the difference is and that's the mistake they make not only do they they deny these objective moral norms but they're ascribing those differences to the fact mm. that we adhere to a, Christian, a religious worldview over their over their secular one um, I go on um, no, I was just going to say that um, it, it's just a, it's a really poor argument. But also, I think that the thing that's also sad about like that is also members of the Christian community seem to accept that as well, mm -hmm. that, 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 because they're so uninformed sometimes around this issue. <coughs> they mm -hmm. think the only, that, that they hold it because they're because they are Christians. But actually, you don't necessarily need to be a Christian to be, be pro-life. They're a good. Uh, mm -hmm. Arguments that don't aren't necessarily ground like well are grounded on a on a, on a Christian worldview. You don't necessarily need to be a Christian to accept those those premises. Uh, for instance, we could point again <coughs> to the secular pro-life alliance, mm. which certainly isn't in favour of Christianity, but they are definitely against abortion. Now, you said there are some arguments that don't depend on a Christian worldview for condemning abortion. How about giving us some of those? Um, well, I think there would be, you know, to my to my sort of common secular, secular friends. I mean, the um, I think what tend, what I tend to point out to people who, who don't accept the Christian worldview is ask them is try and work back from why they uh, why they think killing is wrong. Um, so I would ask them, what's wrong? What's wrong with killing a infant? And say, well, it's 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 just wrong. It's just wrong. Okay, but why why is it wrong? I said, well, they're you know innocent human beings and haven't done it. They haven't done anything wrong. So then, what we can then do is try and work work our way work our way back. Um, so we say, well, you know, what what are, what are the what are the differences between the human the unborn human being and the born infant um, and since they are essentially the same in terms of their uh, function and ability, um, there shouldn't, there's actually no, there's no real moral difference between the two that necessarily makes mm -hmm. killing a newborn infant morally wrong. It doesn't make killing uh, an unborn human wrong. What we've really had is sort of a change, a change of geography. Um, mm -hmm. So I try and work people back, and it's something very, very similar to something you know Francis Schaeffer would do in terms of. Um, um, Create you like trying to observe, the, expose this kind of point of tension. You know, you try and take the try to take the roof off and try and look into what exactly um, is grounding their, their, their grounding their view. So um, the point of tension would be that, given their view, why is it wrong to kill an infant, but not a an unborn human being, especially mm -hmm. later later to, to in terms of their functionality are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was in fact talking with someone <coughs> online yesterday and we were talking about abortion and saying, you know, if it's in the womb, it's fetus, comes out, it's a baby. And I just asked the question, what is it about the birth canal that changes the substance of a fetus into that of a baby? I never did get an answer to that question. It, it, it's also people. What, what you find is, 
not all pro-life, uh, pro-choices obviously, but a number of them, they misuse terms. So what, when they use terms like fetus, what they intend to display, communicate, is some sort of dehumanizing term. So by calling it a fetus, dehumanizes it uh, in, their, in their view. But all it, it's a term, scientifically speaking, it's a term of normal human development. You know, you go through embryo, fetus, uh, new, uh, neonate, infant, toddler, mm-hmm. you know, etc., etc. There's nothing dehumanizing about calling uh, a human being a toddler or uh, an infant. It's just a term of normal human development. It's just like fetus is Latin for little one or offspring. So to, and then baby, it's just a colloquial term. You can have an unborn baby or a born baby. Mm-hmm. And it just means a small, small human being. So mm-hmm. what you find is people just misusing terms. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I still do use the, the uh, use the term fetus, but sometimes that can, can get lost in translation because it, to them, to many people, that can be a dehumanizing term. Mm-hmm. They don't accept that the, the correct term is actually just a, a description of normal human development. So we are best off with saying unborn humans, etc. Mm. Yeah, but when we're talking with the people who disagree with us, it, what you're saying is probably when they say fetus, they seem to think it automatically implies something such as mm. non-human, non-personhood, and such. And if someone's making that claim, they need to be able to back that claim themselves, don't they? Of course, yeah. Mm. That's why I'd ask them. I say, you know, what what do you mean by fetus? Do you um, you know, to say you know, it's no more dehumanising than calling a human being an infant, mm-hmm. um, and they're sort of they're begging the question. They're assuming that that term um, communicates something um, that's subhuman. Um, that yeah, again, it's it's a dehumanising term. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think about arguments that some people forward, such as when they talk about what goes on in a womb called twinning, where apparently a baby the embryo or something splits in two and then comes back together. I mean, I'm hoping I've got that right. And we say, well, you know, a human doesn't do that, but an embryo does. Yeah. So again, they're, mis- they're misusing language. So the embryo is human. So you can only you can only word it like that by begging the question and assuming that the embryo is not a normal stage of human development. Um, you know, um, people say a lot of stuff. I looked at... Um, I've done some sort of looking into um, twinning. Um, it, this, you know, it doesn't really. I guess let me let me try and explore what twinning is and how how someone might respond to it. So it doesn't really it doesn't follow that just because a, an entity can split that it wasn't a whole organism prior to that split. You know, for example, you have things. Uh, I know Patrick Lee uses the example of a flatworm. If you split one flatworm in half, you get two flatworms. It doesn't follow that just because there exi- that, that, that there existed no fl- flat, uh, fl- whole flatworm prior to that to that original split. In the same way, you get starfish. If you take uh, the arm of a starfish, that that's, that can grow into a whole starfish of itself. Um, so that that's that's an issue. So it's not it's not a, um, necessarily a problem. Um, and also, I mean, well, if, if the earlier embryo doesn't have a right to life because it can twin, then none of us have a right to life because um, all of us have the passive potential to twin via things like cloning. Um, mm. So we all, we, all, we all have a passive potential for, for cloning and twinning. And mm. something I always bring up as well is, you know, what if that potential for twinning didn't disappear until you were 10 years old? 
instead of uh, 14 or 15 days uh, post-conception mm-hmm. when twinning can occur, what if it just didn't, you, 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 you could twin until you were 10? Would that mean until you were 10 you couldn't be considered an individual? It's, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, it's, it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Now let's go to another kind of objection that's brought up, and this is a very famous one, I believe it comes from Judith Jarvis Thompson, that one day you wake up and you find your body has been connected through systems of blood transfusions and such with a violinist and this music lover society has actually kidnapped you and said this is the world's greatest violinist and he needs to stay attached to you for nine months in order to live and it looks like only your body can do this if you detach yourself from him he's going to die now the the whole argument of course is saying that you know it could be a really good gesture for you to keep this person attached to you for nine months and have them share their life with you like that but you're not under any moral necessity to do so because you were kidnapped against your will and therefore how is that different from what goes on in pregnancy sure um yeah it's, it's very different i mean the whole the whole concept is really a, a, a false analogy in the sense that Judith Jarvis Thompson's analogy only works in respect to something like rape because mm. no one wakes up that pregnancy is not analogous to going to sleep and waking up mm. with someone attached to you um, so it, it, it's, it's, it's clearly a, a false analogy because to get pregnant is to partake in you generally otherwise in a willing procreative act uh, with that potential for uh, for procreation um, mm. So it's really framed in such a way that only really allows um, analog- analogous to to the rape scenario, um, mm. and it also you can turn it around. You know, you say, well, what if what if you were the violinist? Um, you know, Thompson's analogy only really is framed in such a way that it only allows uh, us to identify with the pregnant woman, but not with the dependent unborn child. So it's mm. framed very very carefully. She's done a she's done a you know. She's done a great job in framing, in framing mm-hmm. it, but it's a very poor argument. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess other issues would be that you know, abortion is not uh, merely withholding support, but it's, it's actually direct killing of a child. So it's a bit of a euphemism, really, to uh, to claim that you're you're simply um, you know disconnecting or withholding support because the actual act of abortion is a direct active. Uh, practice with the intention of killing that unborn child um, mm-hmm. for instance I mean, if the only way we could withhold support um, is by killing someone um, then we, we shouldn't we, you know we shouldn't maybe we shouldn't do it um, you know because these ideas of you know withdrawing support are really as I said are, are euphemistic mm-hmm. it's like calling strangling someone just removing oxygen from them mm-hmm. um, so um, and, and also gets in terms of relationships and stuff like that you know we might not have a duty to uh, to sustain random strangers uh, who we just wake up sort of unnaturally hacked to, uh, hooked up to um, but we clearly do have the, the duty to sustain our own our own offspring and this mm-hmm. is exactly what's missing what's absent in, in Thompson's analogy so um, even if the child is an intruder it only justifies removing them from the from the woman's body not not actually killing her Mm-hmm. What about people who are then look at that and say, but isn't the difference that the child essentially lives, or what symbol when we essentially lives off the mothering? Isn't that the same as a parasite? 
no, because if it, this, this comes up a lot as well. The, the definition of a parasite, by definition, is someone of, of is an entity of a different species. Um, so when, when, when we when we when we use that language, um, we're using it in a sense that isn't generally isn't used um, in the, in the scientific community for. Um, so. And again, it's just it's another attempt to dehumanise. Um, oh, they're not they're not an unborn human. They're a parasite. Um, you know, in some sense, they are um, obviously dependent and 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 using the the mother's body. Um, but to call them a to call them a parasite is um, again, as I, as I said, it's not really it's not using the uh, the term in its biological sense. Another thing as well is that. Actually, there's a lot of research that's gone into um, something called fetomaternal microchimerism, and this has been, uh, and they've kind of demonstrated that actually that fetal cells actually cross the placental barrier and uh, actually heal um, the mother's mother's organs. So, if, if the mm -hmm. mother has uh, damaged liver or kidney or heart, that their stem cells actually cross that placental barrier and have mm -hmm. actually been. Um, Demonstrating some species to actually um, heal uh, those organs. So, again, that's another. Yeah. You know, to go over the opposite end of what you just said, also, uh, Lori, last week, and we've had guests like Dr. Frida Bush come on and say that, in fact, you you were just saying that the child in the womb can provide health benefits to the mother. And mm. Dr. Bush and Lori both said that. Uh, that abortion can cause health risk to the mother, such as breast cancer and other things like that. What do you think of that? Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't, in terms of the um, the breast cancer studies. Um, yeah, there are a number that seem to demonstrate there is a is a link, and it does it does make sense when you think about um, the the whole process of. Mm. Um, the cell growth um, due to sort of breastfeeding and those sorts of things and suddenly you remove that having an abortion and suddenly your body is still developing those cells and stuff like that so you can see see how that, that happens but my main thing uh, area where I think certainly does have a direct negative impact is in terms of mental health um, there was a very very large study done in the, the British Journal of Psychiatry in 2011 um, which basically said that women who have undergone an abortion experience an 81% increased risk of mental health problems, uh, with mm. nearly 10% of those incidents of mental health problems directly uh, attributable to uh, to abortion. Mm. So, uh, you know, this assumption that abortion is a zero-sum act um, isn't really based based in reality, because there are uh, a number of, and this is a very large study looking mm. at. Uh, and that was basically an analysis, a quantitative synthesis analysis of research uh, over 14 years. Mm. Well, let's go, before we look, let's look at one other objection that people often give to abortion and things. I might ask something else even after that, but you know, people say, well, you know, if you want to come from the biblical perspective and you, you say you're against abortion, well, wouldn't God be the one who's the most supportive abortion. Look at how many miscarriages take place. Isn't that an abortion every time? Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I've 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 heard that before. Um, 
I guess the distinction would be between um, would would be between intending uh, and foreseeing something. So um, we, when someone has a miscarriage, um, it's not uh, an intentional human act. Um, whereas abortion, we are directly responsible for our, for our own uh, for our own actions. Um, so, um, you know, I guess we could say with the, with that logic. Um, I guess let me, let me go back. I guess looking at a bigger picture is that life and death is God's prerogative. Yeah. So uh, whether that is uh, uh, the most human beings at their most immature stage of development as the embryo, uh, or at their their most developed as, as the elderly, it's God who's in control. Life and death is His prerogative, not not ours. Um, and something I always bring up is you talk about uh, a lot of people bring up sort of. Uh, data around how, how many miscarriages there are. But actually, when you look quite closely at the data, you tend to see that actually a lot of those, uh, what are often called uh, term miscarriages, tend to be uh, faulty embryos. The fact that actually they were never um, whole human organisms to begin with. And actually, uh, that is simply a process of, of, of uh, um, the, lo the losing of uh, what's kind of a, a non-viable uh, human, human organism. So there are a lot of faulty fertilizations. So it's not necessary. You look at the data and you think that these are hundreds of thousands of, of, of healthy human embryos uh, dying. Um, mm -hmm. It's very often the case that they are uh, faulty, faulty fertilizations. And very much as I said, there's a, there's a vast difference between ourselves, uh, who are morally responsible. Uh, and God, who life and death is His prerogative. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever issue comes up, it's the issue often of consistency. Because, I mean, I'm not sure where you stand on this issue. That some viewers say, there isn't it a bit consistent to be, for instance, pro-life and at the same time affirm the death penalty? I mean, shouldn't you be pro-life across the board? Yeah, no, I've, I've I've heard that before. I guess some people make the distinction between the uh, direct killing of uh, an innocent human being and someone who is morally culpable and has committed some sort of obscene atrocity, uh, deserving of death in, mm. in, in maybe in some states in, in in the states. So it's not necessarily inconsistent to be against mm. uh, the intentional killing of innocent human beings. Mm. Uh, whilst it may be uh, permissible to uh, kill a human being in, in certain situations, whether that be the death penalty, uh, self-defence, you know, it's not uh, it's, it's not necessarily. Uh, I guess when you have to clarify your terms, we don't. As someone who's pro-life, we don't necessarily believe it's always morally wrong to kill another human being. In fact, mm. there are other, uh, you know, a number of situations where you might be permissible. Uh, maybe if you're a police officer in self-defence, if you're in the army, uh, you know, in a war scenario, someone breaks into your house, you know, these might be situations where, um, you know, you're not uh, morally culpable for for, for 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 those for those deaths. Um, where where in the case of abortion, you're uh, you're uh, killing uh, an innocent human being uh, where there's with, without proper moral justification. And so. I guess that would be the distinction. I mean, personally, I'm not 
uh, I can't say I'm for the death penalty mm-hmm. uh, personally, but I know that a lot of Americans who um, are pro-life and are pro-capital punishment, but I don't I don't see there's any uh, mm-hmm. inconsistency between holding those two views, even if uh, you are pro-life and, and don't hold that capital punishment is, is permissible. Yeah, looking back to what we said earlier, aside from the question I brought up about God supposedly being the biggest abortionist and such, and mm-hmm. you did have to get, get into some theology that for the answers we've been given here, we haven't had to appeal to scripture or church tradition or anything like that once. I mean, everything you said, you could have just as well said when you were an atheist, couldn't you? Yeah, that's that's a really good point, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what we were saying earlier about, um, yeah. as I said, I think if when, once we get pushed, when we get pushed back enough, I think we ultimately come to a theological foundation. Mm-hmm. But um, I think uh, from an epistemic point of view, we can very much know that it's morally uh, wrong to kill um, human beings through the process of abortion and mm-hmm. without making an appeal to, to scripture. Um, I think I remember seeing some about a P.Z. Myers once talking about the people holding up signs of with pictures of children at abortion rallies and such mm-hmm. and he said I know it's supposed to scare me but it doesn't because when I see that I just see pictures of meat and meat does not scare me and when I heard about my first followers I could, just, I could just imagine going to his house sometime and seeing some of his children saying my what great collections of meat you have right here because as far as I'm concerned I mean if I was saying well, there's just a body of flesh where that's meat where what's what's any different from when you're old or later on right mm-hmm. um, so say, say again I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get to his, his point so what is he saying he's is that when you hold up pictures like aborted fetuses and such mm-hmm. rallies he says to me I just see meat and meat does not scare me right okay um, yeah, I mean that's a, it's a, it seems like a strange, strange thing to say because mm-hmm. I think what what um, abortion pictures do um, are that they they kind of transcend any ideological uh, beliefs they have about abortion because it, they just confront you um, the fact that um, they basically rehumanise the unborn. And they, they, they kind of, as I was saying earlier about how the term abortion is kind of disconnected um, from any act of violence, it kind of reintroduces that, that association between abortion and being an act of violence against a, mm-hmm. another human being. And that's why I think they can be very good, especially in, uh, in my own culture where, um, by and large, we don't, we don't associate abortion with being an act of violence. Mm-hmm. And so what those pictures do, they make it very, very difficult um, to ignore um, the reality of what, what abortion is and, and what it does, um, mm-hmm. and you can say, well, you know, what a lot of people say, well, well they aren't, they aren't true records, they aren't true pictures. They're what are they? And it's good to ask, well, what is, what is a, a, what would you say is a realistic picture of abortion? You know, what, mm-hmm. what would one look like if this isn't one? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're horrible. I have to be honest, I hate looking at them. I hate looking yeah. at them. But they do a fantastic job, and it's you know I know so many people that have changed their views just on the basis of viewing uh, abortion imagery, because mm-hmm. as I said, it just transcends any ideolo- you know any ideological beliefs you have about it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's in fact what led to Abby Johnson. 
changing her views in her book up Beavis Unplanned, where she talked about escaping where she used to work for Planned Parenthood and then going across the street to a pro-life group when she first really got to look at an ultrasound and see what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's 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 common. I know I know you know, I know uh, several people have had very similar experiences like I was saying about um seeing the silent scream. Um and and you get different people that some people need to just see the humanity of, of, of the unborn in a normal sort of sonosite uh, picture. Um some need to see abortion imagery, um some need to some will just you know, listen to an intellectual argument and think, well, that just makes intellectual sense. Mm-hmm. So there's not there's not a uh, you know necessarily a single pronged approach. Um, but in fact, depending on that that particular individual, um, one one particular approach will be uh, more appropriate than than the others. As I said, some people need to see imagery. Some will listen to a to a pro life argument. Let's go back to something you said earlier about uh, women struggling with mental issues after an abortion what is the connection there usually between abortion and the mental issues that they struggle with <coughs> so um i mean in terms of the, the, the studies i've looked at it doesn't necessarily go into um why that is you can only really in, infer some sort of sense of uh, guilt uh, maybe they were pressured i mean let's be honest men uh, are a big a big problem as well you know get 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 a woman pregnant and then sort of intimidate her um, into having an abortion I know there have been I haven't got the, the data at hand but I know that in a lot of countries I've looked at data where a significant amount a significant amount of abortions are um, performed on the basis of pressure from from the men and obviously mm-hmm. pro-choice people, a lot of the pro-choice community don't really uh, like that being said um, but uh, the reality is that in a lot of cases um, if a woman had a supportive male partner, uh, they wouldn't have an abortion. Mm-hmm. We, when we were doing the show last week, I was asking my guest about the this thing that Obama apparently said. We talked about celebrating freedom for women with abortion, and I said, "Say, I really just see it as the exact opposite." Because one of the big things of feminism was they didn't want to be treated as sex objects by men. But when you legalize abortion and make it acceptable, you in fact make increase the chances that a woman be treated as sex object. Because the guy can say, well, you know, I can sleep with this woman if I get her pregnant. Hey, no big deal. I was just getting an abortion on her. Sure. You know, it's, it's enabled men. It's enabled yeah. men to to uh abuse, abuse women you know it's just no strings you know oh you get pregnant mm-hmm. well you know what you have to do you know what's expected of you and there is this very much personal and social pressure to you know what we would say in the you know culture would be to do the right thing you know to mm-hmm. to, to get to get rid of the baby you know mm-hmm. as if that's some sort of immediate solution and as mm-hmm. we as we know it has long-term effects not only on them as, as individuals but on their long-term um, ability to form relationships to have children to um you know a whole a whole host of things but men definitely play uh, a, a, a real a really serious uh, part in this and as, as, you, as you pointed out it really does just enable men to take advantage of, of women and uh, not commit to that relationship you know it's tied tied in with people with whole views of marriage of relationships and stuff as well so um 
you know, sort of wholesale liberalisation of, of, of marriage as well has had a massive impact on on, uh, on abortion as well. You know, if women, if, if you know, men and women were in uh, loving, committed, uh, uh, monogamous relationships, um, there wouldn't necessarily be any need for for uh, what they perceive as a need for an abortion. Mm-hmm. Now, did you happen <clears throat> to see what Obama said on the Roe v. Wade? Anniversary of here, and if you did see it, what did you think of it? I didn't. I didn't see what he said. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you all have anything over there in the UK comparable to our Roe v. Wade, or I mean, what, what's the history of abortion over there? Um, so we have the um, uh, 1967 Abortion Act, um, mm-hmm. which I think initially had four. Um, four kind of uh, points that would allow that if if they were met, um, one of them was met, you could you could have a, a legal abortion. I think there was one added later on. Um, so o- over here, basically, you can have uh, an abortion up to uh, twenty weeks, um, and <laughs> after that, um, you you can't have abortion. But if there if there's a if a disability is present. Abortion is uh, legal through all uh, stages. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to remind the audience right now you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is Daniel Roger from across the pond talking about abortion in the UK. But if you're listening next week, <clears throat> we're going to have a guest from across the pond again on a very different topic. Uh, Chris Tilling, who was on the show for a while. Be- we're talking about the book How God Became Jesus. We'll be on talking about his book Paul's Divine Christology, looking at the epistles of Paul and seeing an early high Christology there based on the relationship between Christ and the church in comparison to that of God and Israel. It's going to be a very interesting show. Chris Turing's a great guy, a very funny guy. You'll <coughs> really enjoy it. That's going to be next week. But now we're going to get back to what's going on over here. Now, when you talk about the disability issue and such, I <clears throat> that personally resonates with me. My wife and I are both Aspies, and so we're considered disabled. And I remember being at ETS last year and hearing Scott Ray, who I believe was the president then, speaking, gave a talk on abortion, and he mentioned how when it's said that a child has disabilities, it's much more likely to that an abortion would take place because, you know, you don't want this child to go through this kind of life and such. And I I went up to him afterwards very quickly and said, I wanted to thank you for your talk and I wanted to say that, you know, actually, uh, I happen to have Asperger's, as does my wife, and he said, Sorry, here I said, no, don't be sorry, don't be. It might present me with some difficulties, yeah, but in the end, I have a lot of advantages, and life is good. I love my life. I enjoy my life. I like what I get to do. I like that I do it regularly, and it's really sad to me when I hear people talk about children with disabilities as if we necessarily have to lead a hard life. Yeah, I mean, I know I'm mild compared to a lot of other people, but it doesn't necessarily mean that life has to be 
really hard or full of suffering, such thing. When people tell me, for instance, or they introduce me and say, Nick is someone who suffers with Asperger's. And I say, no, no, I don't. Suffering is a choice. I live with it, but I don't have to suffer with it. Sure. It, it, it's really, just really sad to hear people think that a child should be aborted just because of a disability. Yeah. I think it's the, um, actually, I should just clarify, when uh, abortion is 24 weeks, so you can have abortion up to 24 weeks and then up to any time for disability, I said 20 weeks mistakenly. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I really like, I really like what you said, it's, it's, it's really true and I think we, um, I think the reason we're, a lot of people are uncomfortable with, um, with disability is that they, um, they see the life they have and then they compare it to what they think their life would be like if they had a disability. And it's often a very, it's oftentimes very unrealistic um, picture of what a life like that would be. And like you said, when you actually speak to a lot of people who uh, have a disability, um, they don't necessarily, it's not, it's not, the, it's not uh, synonymous with suffering uh, with mm -hmm. a disability. You know, it's accurate to say, look, right. some disabilities uh, do cause a great deal of suffering, oh, um, yeah. but, the, but, but the assumption that anyone who doesn't meet kind of society standards of normalcy uh, doesn't deserve to be here is frankly, uh, well, horrific, it's, it's eugenic, and mm. it's all tied in with this whole, um, I think our whole view has, has changed, because what abortion has done, it's, it's, it's basically made this sort of, um, the child-maternal relationship tentative, is conditional. It's like mm. I will only I will only accept this child into the world if they uh, if they're normal, if they meet society's standards of normalcy. Which is mm. why there's so much pressure um, for children with Down syndrome who have Down syndrome. And we have a big issue over here because when it's diagnosed, I'm sure it's similar in the US, it's anything from 90% plus your mm -hmm. chance of being aborted if you have Down syndrome. And we're now over here. Um, introducing a test which will make it even more uh, less invasive, well, uh, make it less invasive to diagnose Down syndrome earlier on, uh, which means, you know, potentially we might eradicate Down syndrome, not because it no longer exists, but because we kill anyone who has Down syndrome. And I, I think that's truly, uh, you know, horrific. This whole, it's, it's completely eugenic. You know, let's yeah. just weed out anyone who doesn't who's kind of outside of our normal circle so we can have a uh, you know this um, a of some sort of utopian perfect world when no one has any disabilities um, mm -hmm. and it's it's, it's, it's it's really really so sad and then what, how it's very hypocritical as well because what happens is when someone is disabled and they're born into the world we do everything we can within reason to care for them um, it's it's um, I'm not sure what message that sends out to people with disabilities. You know, on one hand, we're trying to weed them out before they get uh, before they get out into the world. But then, mm. if they get out, well, I guess we'll we'll try and look after you now you're here. But really, you shouldn't be here. I think that's the message it sends to people with disabilities. Uh, I can't help but right but think of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which had the idea of test tube babies long before it ever became a reality. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a prophetic book in some senses. Mm -hmm. Now, have you been paying any attention to what's going on over here across the pond with Planned Parenthood? Yeah, so I've, I mean, I've watched the, um, 
I've watched a number of the videos, which mm. were some. I mean, some were just truly uh, shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only issue where I think I ask slightly confused about is what is that? You know, because I'm not I'm not uh, American, so in terms of um, law, whether what Planned Parenthood were doing was legal or not, it seems to uh, the most obvious thing that I thought I had was that can't be legal what they're doing. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm still I'm, I'm still I'm not I'm not really sure why why they haven't um, why they haven't been uh, some sort of uh, lawsuit filed against them and why they're still able to function as they are. Um, yeah, it, it does look like one of the people behind it was indicted recently, and some people are saying this is likely to be a a bad thing because I mean this is a Travesty of justice. Then you got people like Mike Adams, who everyone hates, including myself, saying that no, this is a good thing because ultimately Planned Parenthood is going to be going to trial here and on the national public scene. Everyone's going to get to see what they're like. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's good. I think that's what we need. I love it. I love them to get uh, to get indicted and uh, and to have all their dirty laundry aired. Uh, for everyone to see, because um, they've clearly been up to to, uh, to no good, and um, with some very sort of liberal interpretations of the law, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think you can't help but watch that and just be shocked when you watch some of those videos. The way they're sort of laughing about some of the things they're doing, um, mm-hmm. it's um, yeah, it's very very re- reminiscent of some of the terrible things we've uh, West has done in the sort of eugenic part. Of them. Eugenic uh, type things in the past. Yeah. Do you <clears throat> do you think the videos that were produced were doctored or edited in any way to change what Planned Parenthood was really saying? We didn't see it. I mean, I've watched some of the shorter videos, and then I guess if you watch a short video, what a lot of people have said, well, oh, they've just it's just been edited that way. But then when you watch the longer videos, um, it completely puts it in context and. Um, you know, on all appearances, it doesn't look like they've been doctored, uh, mm-hmm. and I don't think you need to. Why? They don't need to doctor stuff. The stuff they're doing is horrific enough. You don't need to try and make it worse than it already is. It's mm-hmm. already bad, um, and uh, so there really is no reason to try and make it look worse than it is mm-hmm. because um, what they're doing already is, is 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 terrible for everyone to see, and all they've done is made it available for. Um, a wider audience to, to see exactly what goes on in a lot of Planned Parenthoods. Mm-hmm. What do you all think of Reverend when you hear about movements that are going on to have Planned Parenthood defunded so that our government doesn't pay for Planned Parenthood to do what they do? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love it if they were defunded. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but it's all under this euphemism, isn't it? I mean, what you hear about is, is women's health. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, to uh, and that's that's it's a whole rhetorical thing, isn't it? If you talk about women's health, well, actually, what you really mean is abortion. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, then it's rhetorically very powerful because if you're pro-life and you want to defund Planned Parenthood, you're against women's health. You know, mm-hmm. it's a very rhetorically powerful point. So very much, I guess, pro-life people have to be, be very careful to distinguish between what is genuinely women's health can be. Uh, Described as women's health, and what clearly isn't, uh, which is which is abortion and and selling fetal parts for mm-hmm. profit. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I'm happy for Planned Parenthood to to practice genuine uh, women's health, um, offering their mammograms and things and uh, access to birth control and things. But um, in terms of uh, abortion, clearly, should, I don't really understand why that should be funded by the state. Mm. Now, when you talked about the whole issue being about women's health, some people would say, but yeah, aren't there cases where if a child was going to be born and that child would die anyway and it would kill the mother at the same time. I mean, isn't that a women's health issue? Yeah, but the, the um, yeah, I mean, when the, when a mother's health is at risk, um, you know, that is a, a unique and, uh, and, and a rare, rare scenario. Um, but that's not the same as, as an abortion. I mean, in most cases, I mean, I know I, I speak to a lot of obstetricians and uh, looked at a lot of studies on this, is that a case where the women, the woman, the mother's and the unborn child's life, uh, well, the, the woman's life is genuinely at risk, uh, are extremely rare. I guess the most common uh, would be an ectopic pregnancy. Mm. Again, this is when we have to be really clear about our terms. Is that abortion is the intentional killing of a, an unborn human being, um, whereas when we talk about an ectomic, ectopic pregnancy, our intention is not to kill the unborn human. Uh, our intention is to sustain the life of the mother, um, and so. Um, this is when it's, this, this distinction between intending and foreseeing is, is important because um, an, an ectopic pregnancy, for instance, is not analogous or parallel to an elective abortion. For instance, you know, in such scenarios, scenario, the, the physician is left with two choices. Uh, they can do nothing and let two people die or act in such a way that saves one life, even though that, that kind of unintended and avoidable result is the death of the, the human embryo or fetus. So really, what you know, what is the greatest moral good that can be achieved mm-hmm. in that situation? It has to be saving the life of the mother, um, mm-hmm. and in you know, and in, as I said, in saving the life of the mother, the physician foresees the death of the embryo or fetus, but certainly doesn't intend that. And in every abortion, the intention is always, always uh, to kill the unborn human being. And mm-hmm. I always think of it. I, I found this quite helpful. I'm not sure where I found it, but this whole uh, idea of uh, a scene, a road traffic accident, where you have you have two critically injured people, and the doctor, the doctor does nothing. Uh, wrong, the doctor does nothing wrong by choosing to save the one who has the greatest chance of survival, uh, surviving their injuries, even though they may foresee that this choice may end in the, may result in the death of the other person. Um, but this is very different to throttling the person and intending their death, which would be analogous to abortion in that in that, um, that analogy. Mm-hmm. And we could also say if we're so concerned about women's health and about half of the abortions that take place, the victims would be women, and those women don't get to experience any great health benefits because of it. Yeah, yeah. But you have to remember that we're not allowed to to say that because if you are uh, uh, if you're a man, you're not allowed to say anything. So the fact if you if you have a penis, your argument is invalid, uh, regardless of what you think as well, which is a lot of 
feminists will argue. Um, so, but again, it's it's it's. I'm not I'm not sure really people, many people care. I think I think people are radically pro-choice. are aware that abortions kill, um, you know, perhaps half the time girls over boys. Um, but what it comes down to is is their is their whole ideology is that abortion is a uh, is a is a right. It's their, their their individual has autonomy and they can do whatever they want with their body, uh, regardless of when it is or the reasons uh, behind doing so. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point <clears throat> that uh, Deeper Waters is a listener-supported ministry. Everything we do here is supported by you. And if you're, if you pay attention to what goes on at Risen Jesus, and you've watched my blog feed and my Facebook feed and such, you've probably seen some of the big news we've had recently. And that's that uh, Risen Jesus had had a big fundraiser going on because they wanted to raise enough money so that Ali and I could move down to Atlanta and I could get to assist Mike with the social media aspects and such of his ministry. And to all listeners out there who gave us who gave in this drive, we have to say thank you because you did it. You raised up enough money to, to help us get to do this and so as it stands right now I'm in a room filled with several boxes and the bookshelves have been cleaned out which trust me that takes a whole lot of doing around here and we will be moving down to Atlanta on February 17th I'll let you all know throughout how that will affect the show but we will definitely still keep doing the podcast after we move and definitely still keep doing the blogs. I've been booking some great guests to come on. I, even Gary Habermaster is going to be coming on later on this year. Right before Easter, he's going to be our guest. He, he said he's going to research for resurrection just for me. Isn't that special? But <clears throat> just because we've raised this goal doesn't mean we don't need your continued support. And I would really encourage it because everything you give it makes it so much easier and if you've been enjoying the fruits of the Deeper Waters podcast and everything that we do here, please take some part in the harvest and help us out financially. If you want to do that, you can go to our blog site. Right now it's deeperwaters.ddns.net and when you click on it, you'll find a a link there that says help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries that will take you to Risen Jesus when you make your donation there you contact myself or Ari or Mike and Debbie and say hey I made a donation I want to go to Nick Peters I want to go to Deeper Waters they will make sure we get that donation and it will be tax deductible and if you can, in fact, become a monthly donor, and you're just the bread and butter of what we do. And that would be incredibly, incredibly helpful. You can also support us by buying books on Amazon that I write or co-write, such as one that I've written about a, um, <clears throat> a creed for the ages, to look at the Apostles' Creed, or books like Defining Inerrancy or Groundness. And then, guys, a... Uh, Valentine's Day is coming up. Do I really need to stress 
how important it is that you remember Valentine's Day. I mean, if you do not want to be sleeping on the couch at your house, remember Valentine's Day. And uh, even that, a lot of women seem to really like jewelry. And if you're wanting to get her some jewelry or even planning on popping the question or something of that sort, there's a link there. You can support us through purchasing jewelry. And you click on it. My friend Lena Cluster handles that. The access code is LOVE. Whatever you purchase, 25% of what you purchase will go to us here at Deeper Waters. So, guys, if you do something like this, you get your le the lady in your life something really, really special, and you get support and ministry at the same time. And that is a win-win situation right there. Um, Daniel, do you have a, any organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, um, I said I work for um, Life Training Institute, so I'm sure we would uh, definitely uh, recommend logging on, uh, looking at the resources there, um, and uh, seeing how you can help out, especially if you're based in the U.S. Uh, we have a whole team of amazing speakers who would love to come and train uh, train you in uh, pro-life advocacy and apologetics. And you, you can look at, uh, if you log on to prolifetraining.com, uh, you can find all the great free resources that we offer um, and, uh, and how you can uh, get involved and, and help. Mm -hmm. well, I certainly encourage you all to do that because our friends across the pond certainly need as much support as we do. Now, Daniel, what steps do you think we can take over here to kind of to take the steps we need to do to be stopping abortion from taking place? And especially since I mean, the European society has become so secularized that Christianity is in the minority, and we don't really want to see that happen over here. What What do you think we need to be doing? I, I guess one of the key things is that. Uh, is making sure that people know what the Christian worldview is. You know, it's possible to be a Christian without, like you, like you well know, is to be a Christian, um, but not actually have a Christian worldview in terms of uh, moral issues. Um, and so, the, the key thing for me is making sure that people in churches are mm. uh, have an understanding of the kind of robust Christian worldview and how that affects every aspect of our life. Um, especially the area of ethics and, and what makes human beings valuable. Um, uh, when is killing right or wrong? Um, what does uh, yeah, what, what is a Christian view to hold in these things? Because as I said, far too many people have their, their ethical views informed by the secular perspective rather than the Christian one. So the, the real challenge is to make sure that the people we have in churches understand what a robust Christian worldview is mm -hmm. and uh, and understand how that's more than capable of, of competing in the marketplace mm -hmm. of ideas. Mm -hmm. Are there some concerns that we should have, some ways we should be careful when we bring the topic up? Because while we want to speak about the problem in the evils of abortion, chances are there are some people in our churches in every church who have been affected by abortion in some way. Maybe they've had an abortion themselves or they have know someone very close to them who's had an abortion. 
and a lot of them could be carrying a lot of guilt and shame from something involving abortion in the past. So how should we handle it in light of that? Sure. I mean, I think whatever we do, the thing we shouldn't do is ignore it. If mm-hmm. someone has, uh, from the Christian perspective, if someone has guilt and shame, they need to bring that to Jesus. There is uh, mm-hmm. there's redemption, there's forgiveness. Um, mm-hmm. And so the worst thing we can possibly do is let people... Uh, in our Christian community, suffer, uh, be held back by that uh, that guilt and suffering, when uh, everything we've done uh, is is uh, is uh, you know Christ died for. So we whatever we do, it shouldn't be ignoring it. And I think that's that's what a lot of churches do. Mm-hmm. They think well, rather than risking upsetting someone, which it may well do, um, mm-hmm. we will just ignore it. But absolutely, that's the thing we shouldn't do. Um, so I think whenever we talk about it, it has to be extremely sensitively. Um, as I said earlier, a lot of the reasons, uh, well, some of the reasons women have abortions is because uh, out of fear, you know, out of fear of, mm-hmm. of what the, uh, their partner would do to them if they didn't, um, you know. So, um, you know, their decision, these decisions are often not necessarily always tied up in this sort of hedonistic hedonistic choice of well yeah. you know it's, it will just ruin my life so I'm just going to have an abortion you know not everyone has an abortion for these, uh, for these mm-hmm. reasons there's a whole host of reasons and we do have to be very sensitive about it when we talk it, talk about mm-hmm. it um, but we shouldn't negate talking about what, what abortion mm-hmm. does and what it what it is mm-hmm. and um, you know and as much as we can that, that, that we that, that we make sure that those that are Christian communities are informed about this and they actually know that yeah, if, if something happens, you make a mistake, you you get pregnant. Um, the thing that is not going to solve it is having an abortion. The thing that might will solve it is communicating that with Christian friends and mm-hmm. um, people rally around, help them, make sure um, you know there are other options involved. You know, adoption, keeping the baby um, amongst the sort of Christian community will support them in that decision. Family, you know, um, as I said, the worst thing we can do is is just ignore it. Because, like you said, Christian communities are full of people who have had abortions and are maybe mm-hmm. contemplating them. And um, in some sense, we uh, are complicit uh, by not engaging it. Mm-hmm. You know, what about when it, we encounter people who say also, do you think there's great value if people confess what they're doing? To someone, what they've done to someone else. That I mean, we come to Jesus, we repent, we ask forgiveness. But at the same time, isn't there value in confessing to one another and finding someone else you can talk to in the church about it? Oh, without 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 doubt. I mean, the most freeing thing to do is, you know, look, we can't hide anything from God. God knows everything we've done already, so we can always we can either confess what we've done and pursue forgiveness or we can as Christians we can live um, as if God doesn't know what we've done we need to bring our shame and guilt to Christ pursue forgiveness and that, that can begin by by having an honest discussion with, with a Christian friend saying look I've done this I'm so I'm so guilty you know I know it was wrong um, and it's extremely freeing to confess sins to one another it's a very biblical principle confess your sins to one another and I know that you know, obviously a completely different situation where I've where I've done things and I've realised actually it's extremely freeing 
to uh, to discuss what I've done with someone, mm-hmm. and um, and to know that ultimately I'm I'm uh, forgiven, um, and um, that doesn't mean obviously we pursue uh, sin knowing that we're that, that we're forgiven. But very much our view of the sin is uh, uh, that we want to we want it out we want it out of our life, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and to pursue forgiveness and a, and, a, and, a, and a life of you know sanctification and etc. Mm-hmm. You know, we could we also <clears throat> keep in mind something, and I'm not saying you haven't, but something we forget is that we talk about women who struggle with need for forgiveness for abortion, mm-hmm. but a lot of men can do that as well too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, this is what we were talking about about how men who you know, there are men who have pressured women into having abortions who are now Christians. They will carry an immense amount of guilt and shame about what they did. Mm-hmm. And like we, were, like we were saying about, um, you know, women pursuing forgiveness, again, God knows what they've done. They know what they've done. There's no point in hiding it and letting that shame and guilt ruin their, ruin, ruin their life. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to confess the evil that they've done. Um, they know it already. Um, and there's no point in hiding it from the one who knows all. Um, so you're spot on, you know. It's whether you're a man or woman, you're a man or a woman, and you've been involved in something. You need to confess. Mm-hmm. And also, when we're talking about this, isn't one of the big issues with abortion, in fact, that the church really doesn't talk about issues involving sexuality that much. We don't know how sex fits into a Christian worldview. We just pretty much say. Um, don't do it until you're married and don't have an abortion. And we need a lot more of that, don't we? Oh, of course. I mean, a really good example is um, is the whole gay marriage debate. Mm-hmm. And, and and it took it took gay marriage uh, debate to happen for us to for Christians to sort of start bringing books out about what marriage is. Mm-hmm. So we, we're like we're, we're ten steps behind. I'm sure if you read Robert P. George's. Um, uh, book uh, What is Marriage mm-hmm. fantastic yeah. book I've looked through it I actually haven't got to read it yet but I'd say it's on my shelves but it's packed up right now with everything else <laughs> it's a fantastic book but the sad mm-hmm. thing is is that didn't come out until this debate had already been going on for years mm-hmm. right. and so as Christians we need to be perhaps a little bit more um, you know we're, we're sort of five steps behind where culture's going and so suddenly we're yeah, we need to be proactive. We need, to, you know, the church for years should have been not just assuming people know what marriage is. Well, if people are getting divorced and the mm-hmm. divorce rates are going out, people don't yeah. understand marriage, and so it shouldn't take, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of radical change in the redefi- you know, redefining marriage mm-hmm. for us to suddenly start. Oh no, no, marriage is actually, you know, it's a it's a permanent, exclusive, monogamous, uh, uh, complementary complementary union. You know, why 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 wasn't the church educating people about this before? Um, you know, we've already, in some sense, have lost the debate already, and and uh, and it's only now that we're bringing book out books out about uh, you know what is what is sex, what is marriage, these sorts of mm. things. So I think in again, and this ties in like you were saying about um, talking about sexuality and sexual identity and these sorts of things. We just need to be actively. Uh, educating people in our Christian communities and if we don't do it um, they are going to make mistakes I'm remembering that back when I was in Bible college such I was uh, attending my church 
time and <clears throat> the associate pastor was speaking of the service about the silver ring thing and for those who don't know that's kind of like a, a true love wait thing and waiting to marriage things like that and he said you know if you have sex before marriage it's going to be for selfish reasons but okay I can understand that I mean that makes sense to me and he said but just think about what could happen if you do that you could get an STD you could get pregnant think about the shame that you feel you might think about the guilt you could carry and I'm listening to something I'm, I'm sorry pastor but to me those sound like pretty selfish reasons also and the more he kept talking and all he was doing was just no 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 and barely any mention of joy and I <clears throat> was sitting back there and I was being bored and as I tell people if you are talking about sex and you've got a college guy in the audience who is getting bored you are doing something wrong yeah look I mean the, the bar, <laughs> this is where we're in such a we're, we're so confused on this that, mm -hmm. I mean the two first commands God gives to human beings in the Bible is to have well it's Adam and to have mm -hmm. sex and eat lots of food <laughs> For the me, they are the description of the world. It, exactly. Look, these these are two good things, and um, for for Christians, have these sort of kind of weird Victorian view of sex. We don't. Right. We don't. The, the Christian. This is again. This is about having a, a robust Christian worldview in mm. terms of ethics uh, mm. and, and, and 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 sex and stuff like that as well. God, it, it's not it's not an accident that sex is pleasurable. It's right. not these these things are not accidents. God made sex to be uh, a pleasurable activity to be celebrated, but within the confounds of marriage. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm I'm completely with you. I mean, I I don't think people are persuaded by just being trying to scare people. Oh, yeah. if you have sex, you might get an STD. You probably won't. You know, what if you did and you don't? Oh, well, nothing. And then someone does it, they don't get an STD. Well, mm -hmm. nothing bad happens. God can't be angry about it. Yeah. Sort of thing. This very strange <clears throat> moralistic view of God. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we need again. We need as Christian community. We need to be better at communicating Christian worldview, and that is, you know, uh, even definitely the case when it comes to, uh, to to sex and marriage. And just um, we need to be more sort of uh, yeah, just be more forthright and celebrate of of view, which is a good view. But wants us to have uh, get married, have lots of sex, and eat lots of good food. For me, those are really positive things, and I, I think Christians be known for that, and not for, um, you know, oh, don't don't have sex because of this, don't have sex because of that, don't have sex because of this. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of uh, you know negative things that come from uh, uh, having having sex outside of, uh, of, of 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 marriage, but they aren't good reasons necessarily to not have sex um, mm -hmm. out of marriage. Um, so. As I said, we need to be more. We need to be as a Christian community. We need to be prophetic. We need to be, see where culture's going. Um, it's not hard in terms of sex and marriage and stuff like that. And we mm. need to be educating people in our communities mm. about um, a, a proper, robust Christian view of them. Yeah, I mean, we, we were talking about the whole marriage issue and the redefinition of marriage. I've <clears throat> said before that I often talk to a lot of guys about what's going on in their marriage to help them out too in fact I I have, I have a whole group on Facebook just for Christian men who are married engaged dating or hoping to date someday and find someone just so we can learn how to be good husbands and 
things of that sort. And whenever I, I talk to a lot of men, they'll start telling me, well, my wife is doing X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. Okay, listen, I, I hear what you say, what she's doing, but I don't care about that right now because I'm not talking to her. I'm talking to you. What are you going to do in response? But even before that, the first question I, so I always question I always ask them is, did you make a covenant? Did you make a covenant? And if you made a covenant, then say, okay, well now it's time for you to honor that covenant. And we've lost that in the church because we become so self-focused where we look and say, well, you know, if I'm not getting sex like I wanted, if this marriage isn't making me happy and such, and I'm just going to walk away and do something else. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um yeah, I, I talk to a lot of people who view, view marriage like that. It's uh, again, it's a contract. They, they see it as a contract rather than a than a covenant. It's like well, you mm. haven't lived up to your part, so that's it. I'm off. I'm mm. off. I'm not. I'm not as happy as I thought I would be. So mm. I'm, I'm off. Um, again, this is all tied up with you know with things like uh, again our views of sex and marriage and stuff like that. Again, I mean one of the, one of the benefits of not having sex before you get married is that you actually communicate. You learn to you learn to talk. You're spending you know you're investing all this time in that relationship so that mm-hmm. when you do add the physical aspect to it, it's with the assumption that you actually really really know that the, the person. Uh, you know their likes, their dislikes, their passions, their, uh, the things they hate. Uh, you know their 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 uh, their, uh, their uh, views on a whole host of other things whereas if you if you if you uh, you know have that have that physical aspect straight away you become so um obsessed with the physical side that you usually mm. end up neglecting neglecting this uh, relational side mm. of, of the relationship and then when you suddenly get married um you've committed you've, you've created a situation that's um yeah very challenging to flourish in well, we're getting close to time. We're going to start wrapping things up. So, before we get even there, I'd like to you to picture someone who's listening to this podcast, and this is a woman who's had an abortion, and right now is suffering with guilt from it. What do you say to this woman? I would, uh, you know, I would say, you know. Uh, if you you know if they were at home, I'd say, look, talk to God. Tell God, God already knows what you've done. Talk to Him. Uh, uh, demonstrate you know how, how how you feel about what what you've done. Um, confess it to God. Repent. And then I go and talk to a Christian friend. I grab grab a friend. Talk about what you know. Uh, confess what you've done. Um, and pursue forgiveness through uh, through what what God's already done and through through friendship and um i guess begin that sort of path to uh, to wholeness once once again um you know the fact that she, that she feels guilt is is obviously a sign of you know conviction and uh, an awareness that something terrible has been done again you don't know the situation as well you know whether it's yeah, yeah. All mm-hmm. the facts where she was pressuring into doing it, and uh, you know, there are a whole 
host of uh, uh, complications and, and, and things that could be involved. I guess, as I said, if this person's a Christian, it's to confess to God, confess to a friend, and, and pursue forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Now, let's also enter and say that suppose there's a man listening who's been responsible for pressuring a woman to have an abortion or not doing enough to stop her from having an abortion, and now he's struggling with the guilt. What do you say to this man? Yeah, I think my first... It's, um, yeah, it depends. If I, if I had a friend, uh, I guess if I had a male friend who, who told me, um, I think there would be some... I would struggle not to have some angry words, Mark Driscoll style, um, with him. Um, but uh, again, very very similar is the uh, is have a discussion about awareness of what they've done. Uh, it's it's an absolutely horrible thing that they've done, not only to their partner, uh, but obviously to their unborn child who's now uh, dead as a result of their of their uh, of their of their pressure. I want to uh, you know think about why they why they thought exactly what they were doing is the right thing, whether they thought about their other options. Um, and uh, again, pursue the path of forgiveness again by by confessing to God and confessing to friends, and uh, and making sure that they pursue uh, proper repentance, and so that never 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 happens again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in your video, we're getting to the point then where we need to start wrapping things up here, and it's been great having you for this hour and a half talking about how things are across the pond and such a if anyone wants to know more about you do you have a blog a website a way they can get in touch with you and find out more uh yeah so i i don't blog too much but i do um uh, occasionally at the uh the failed atheist.com um and you can also find my um my there's also a link to my twitter account on there a mm-hmm. few uh, articles and Obviously, I'm very interested in uh, sort of Christian apologetics and stuff as well. So I've got some a list of recommended books um, on a whole host of different areas to sort of mm-hmm. help you have a pretty robust Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, if you're on Facebook as well, um, I help run the UK apologetics page as well. So um, mm-hmm. if you're interested in promoting and supporting evangelism and apologetics in the UK, then that can be a good place to, to network as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And th- for our listening, I did just look up the site, and it is when you go to the failed atheist, not just failed atheist. And yeah, I see your website here. So yes, if you want to get in touch with him, just come here and take a look. He's got some good stuff up here. And do you have any final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience? Uh, yeah, just thank you for listening, and um, thanks for inviting me on, Nick, to to talk about these things. Apologise for the uh, the technical issues that meant we didn't have a little didn't have a bit longer to chat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just you know I really want to encourage people to uh, to pursue a, a really robust Christian worldview by um, uh, reading good books. Reading good books is a good way. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and as I said, if you want to become more informed on the on the the area of pro life apologetics and, and advocacy, is uh, look up. Life Training Institute, go on prolifetraining.com, mm-hmm. absorb the resources by people like Scott Plissendorf. Um, again, a good book, one I'm here to shout out is Scott's book, um, The Case for Life, which is a fantastic book. 
you know, if you were, and you only want to own one book on the on pro life on the pro life work as a Christian, or even as a non Christian, is is pick up this book. It's a fantastic resource um, that will equip you to be a a great pro life advocate, and we need more of them, uh, both in the UK and and the US. Mayor, I'd like you to thank you for coming on, and I'd like to remind everyone that. Uh, Next week, we're going to have Chris Tilling on, talk about Paul's Divine Christology. But uh, Daniel, thanks for coming on. Hopefully, we'll see you back here again sometime. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Nick. And for now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>